do intro now, then we're going to start a movie. <clears throat> so that wasn't the intro? No, it is. <laughs> it seemed like a pretty solid intro. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, that is the voice of my friend Moby. Welcome to the One Life, One Chance podcast. Um, and now I'm not in my house right now. I'm not in my kitchen. I'm at Moby's house. So thanks for having me, Moby. Um, welcome to the show, Moby. Hi. I'm a little... Well, in hindsight, I kind of wish I had come to your house Yeah. for a few reasons. One, so I could play Max's drums. Does he still have drums there? Hell yeah. Okay. Um, the other is, I'm assuming Stella would be oh, there. He loves Stella. I met Stella when Stella, when I think like the first day you got Stella. She, came, she went in your pool too. And I remember we had lunch at Cafe Gratitude and Stella was there and she mm -hmm. was like the size of my hand. Stella's beautiful and Stella's been to your pool parties too. And she has such solid comedic timing. <laughs> like the videos, the videos oh, yeah. that you guys make in your van and Stella's just in the middle, like the straight person and whether she's dumb or oblivious or like just the most checked out perfect. Yeah. Like, like comedic canine. She, she, she's used to the morses, I guess, the music and the, the drums and the insanity. So yeah, yeah. I, I love her in that. Um, all right. So Moby, I, I know you as Moby, as my friend, the world knows you as Moby, the artist which you're an amazing artist, but I, I want I want to I want to talk about a bunch of the roots and stuff of your of your growing up and stuff like that. I know that um obviously you were born in New York. We know that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then did, so you were born in New York. You're born in Harlem. I was born on 148th Street, and then lived in New York until I was two. And when I was two, my dad died, and so my mom and I moved back to Connecticut where she had grown up, and I grew up poor white trash in Connecticut, like on food stamps and welfare until I was around 18. And you, and when you think about Connecticut, I don't think poor white trash. I think of like, but actually oh, Danbury, Connecticut by the anthrax. I lived in Danbury. Okay. And then um, I also lived in Darien, Connecticut, okay. which is one of the wealthiest towns in the world. But my mom and I were on food stamps and welfare and she dated Hell's Angels. Wow. So it was weird. Like my first serious girlfriend in high school, her dad owned a fleet of oil tankers. And my second serious girlfriend, when I went off to college, uh, her she was descended from Bill Hewlett, who started the company Hewlett Packard. Okay, I so heard that. she had a trust fund of at least a couple of billion dollars. Wow! And so there's me, like my mom and I had our little black and white TV with the eight inch screen and the actually, you know, like the the clothes hanger as the antenna. Mm -hmm. And I would go to my girlfriend's house and she would have just gotten back from Paris and be on the way to like the comp, the, the Hewlett compound in Lake Tahoe. Jesus. And I, I visited this compound and it was so out of control. They had a railroad connecting the houses on the compound. Wow. That's crazy money. And my mom and I are like, well, we're watering down the juice and the milk to make it last longer because we didn't have enough money for food. Wow. So it was a really, it was a weird way to grow up. And how did your dad pass away? If you mind me asking. He, like me, was an alcoholic okay. and he got drunk and was driving too fast and drove into a wall. Wow. Yeah. I lost my dad at three, so I can totally relate to that. Um, so how long, so you're in New York, but how long did you live in Connecticut for before you moved to New York on your own? Well, growing up in Connecticut, because Darien, where I grew up, is about 45 minutes from Manhattan. And... When I discovered punk rock, the way I discovered punk rock was, that was one of my questions. So yeah, I, there was this movie called Mr. Mike's Mondo Video. Okay, and it was a writer from Saturday Night Live named Mike O'Donohue, and it was basically because this was 1977, 78. Mm -hmm. He put together a bunch of video clips and released them as a movie. Okay, and I went to go see it, and one of the clips was Sid Vicious singing "My Way." 
And I, I think sat, I remember seeing that. But he did that in another movie too, though. Probably it was in the Great Rock and Roll. Oh, that, that's right. That's right. And and I sat in the theater, and he came out and he did my way, and I was like, "What is this?" And then how old were you then? I would have been thirteen. Okay, I guess. Yeah. And then around that time, WNEW started playing The Clash and Elvis Costello, and but I don't know if you remember this, but like being a punk rocker or a new wave kid was there was so much stigma associated with it. 100%. So like I couldn't go to school and admit to people that I liked The Clash. Okay, Because yeah. you'd, get, you'd get beaten up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, a couple of my other friends uh, admitted they also liked The Clash. So and, camaraderie. Is like, uh, yeah. And then I remember our big, our coming out party as punk rock <laughs> new wave kids was we went to see Talking Heads. It would have been 1980 in Central Park. And we bought T-shirts. Okay. And um, my friend Jim was the only one of us brave enough to wear his Talking Heads T-shirt to, to school. school. And so, like, I remember that first day of, I guess it would have been high school, and he walked down the hallway with his Talking Heads shirt on. That's amazing. And we were like, you're the bravest person I've ever met. Wow. That's just Talking Heads, too. It's not, nothing like Nazi punks fuck off or something. Like, No. That came yeah, later. You know, yeah. then, then we started our band called the Vatican Commandos. Yeah. Was, yeah you, dude, you're getting all the questions. So, yeah. Sorry. So, when did, that, when did that start? So, how old were you when that band started? Well, I started playing guitar when I was around 10. Okay. And I studied classical music and jazz. And then I heard The Clash on the radio. And a friend of mine who had lived in the UK, his older brother had a copy of Nevermind the Bollocks. And he loaned it to me. And I learned how to play God Save the Queen. Awesome. And then I asked my friend Jim and our friend Chip, and I said, we should start a band. We'd never been in a band before. And I had a tiny little amp. Chip had a drum set that, I don't know, it was like a $50 drum set. And then we stole one of those Radio Shack microphones from the, <laughs> AV, from the AV department mm-hmm. at our high school. And Jim, the singer, sang through his stereo. Wow. And so it was terrible. But like suddenly we were, we're in a band. Yeah, and yeah we making like music, yeah. Covering, the, you know, doing like I'm So Bored with the USA. And and then around this time. Uh, what year? What year? This would have been 80, okay. 81. Okay. Um, there was WNYU. Yeah. Had this show called Noise the Show and Oi the Show with Tim Summer. Okay. And every, it was like, t- I think Tuesday at 7 or 7.30. And it was just the only place you could hear punk rock and hardcore. And we started listening to it and it was, it was amazing. It was so exciting. Cause mm-hmm. like you'd hear, you know, heart attack and kraut and all the, you yeah, know, the, the, like the, the early New York punk rock bands. Yeah. And then they'd announce that there were these shows. Okay. And so one night we went to go see fear sick at the In mud club. Okay. And so we went to see fear and it was like this room filled with like all of a sudden we were like, wow, they're all these punk rock kids. Yeah. And so suddenly we're not the, alone. The, yeah. And yeah. and then we went to like a couple of weeks after that, went to A seven. If you remember A seven. Oh yeah. No, I heard yeah. about it. It's never been there, yeah. Before um, my time. Not surprisingly, it was the corner of Seventh Street now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, now Niagara Bar for many years. Yeah. Yeah. Um and uh Dougie from Kraut was the bartender. Oh, wow. And so we went there to see Kraut, and he was the bartender before playing in the <laughs> That's band. That's awesome. And at this point, <laughs> we had heard about Straight Edge. So mm. we all started drawing X's on the back of our hand. We didn't really know what it meant because we were all still drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I remember sitting <laughs> at the, I remember being 15 years old, sitting at the bar at A7 and Dougie grabbed me. We'd never met, held me down and with cleaning solution, wiped the X off the back of my hand. Wow. Cause you saw he drinking or something or just. No. Cause he was like, he was like, we don't want any of that straight edge bullshit in here. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. So, okay. So you started going to shows then. And so you were seeing like mostly like local hardcore bands, right? Local New York bands. And then, I mean, I feel like such an old guy reminiscing about this. Like the first band that came from out of town, like you probably liked. Yeah. Well, I feel, I, I really feel like punk rock grandpa Simpson. <laughs> um, but then we got really lucky because there was a club in Bridgeport, Connecticut called Pogo's. Okay. Not named after the dance, named after the cartoon character. Okay. And it's it was super this, old. Yeah. It was this failing Irish bar, but somehow they started booking punk rock shows. Okay. And it was 30 minutes from where we lived. Perfect. And it was between New York and Boston. So literally everybody played there. So we would go to New York to see shows. Yeah. But suddenly we're going to Bridgeport, Connecticut to see, I mean, like The Misfits and Black Flag Damn. and Flipper and like Minor Threat and circle jerks and the gun club yeah. and just on to like every touring band stopped at this crappy little bar that's crazy and it would and so it, it from that sort of came like this punk rock connecticut scene and then the sheridan brothers opened the anthrax yeah that was huge that was huge yeah. in the, the late 80s too for like youth crew bands and the straight age bands go there so were you going were you going to cbgb's also at that time too oh yeah yeah so the bands would probably stop in Connecticut there and then come to CB's. That was like... And we go to the matinees at CB's. Mm -hmm. um, and then sometimes there would be a band you'd want to see. Like you'd see Black Flag at Rock Hotel and yeah, then you'd see them in Bridge. Like, because we love Black Flag so much that like yeah. you just see them any chance you could. Do you remember like what it felt like going to like your first show like that? It was out of town band or somebody that you... They came to our town like it's Black Flag. It's was it scary? Was it, were you nervous? Was I think it was the Misfits. Were you, were, did you go in the pit? Did you die? Did you sing? Oh yeah, along? that's yeah. yeah. I mean, like because I was 15, 16 years old, yeah. and at that point you're indestructible. Totally, like fearless. We lived, and also as as we move along, we'll get to the point when I sort of left the hardcore scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it involves one of our friends. Okay, but I don't want to jump the gun. Okay, <laughs> so but the like. The hardcore scene in 80, 81, 82, 83 was like, if you fell down, 30 people picked you up. 100%. You know, and it was just, you you went in a, you moshed in a circle. Yeah. And like occasionally bumped into people, but there was no, it wasn't violent. Mm -hmm. You know, there was stage diving and people caught you. 100%. And it was really, it was magical. It was also like a true underground scene because there was no internet. There was yeah. no, the closest thing to media coverage was when fear were on SNL. Yeah. You know, so this is which famous John Joseph and yep. Ian were at. Yes. Um, but apart from that, like you had to like find like these little record stores, flyers, all that yeah. stuff. And so it was like a home away from home for you probably growing up with a single mom and not having a dad. And, and did you have a lot of friends back then? And did you feel like going to the shows was sort of like this away from like a family kind of vibe, it, especially in Connecticut? Yeah. Because there weren't, that many hardcore kids in Connecticut mm -hmm. and we all knew each other. And yeah. it was interesting because some of them were very blue collar and some of them were really preppy. Like Ray Capo, that like the youth of today guys um, and violent children. Yeah. And before that, like they, they definitely. Crippled youth. Yeah. So and some, too, some yeah. of them came from like Ray, I don't know if he did cause he was from Danbury, but like they definitely were like a little more of sort of like a preppy, clean cut. Like, and so were we. Yeah. You know, we were from, even though I grew up poor white trash, I was still like a scared, 
little white kid from Derry and Connecticut, mm-hmm. you know, and then you'd meet these, like, especially the kids from New York, you know, like they were really hard. They were actual tough guys, hundred percent, you know, and they were terrifying. I was like, I was like, I just want to go back to Connecticut and like <laughs> listen to black flag records in my mom's house. Like, but, the, but there was also something exciting about that kind of fear no pun intended, like going to yeah. punk shows and not know what's going to happen and seeing the, there's the local toughs, local skins. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to stay in my section, have a good time and stay away from the, you know, it was like the fear kind of thing. You until know? I completely agree with you. But then I remember that for me, the turning point was a show. I think it was rock hotel at the Ritz. Those with, are scary shows. And it was like Cro-Mags, Murphy's law. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, and I remember standing up in the balcony and like, skinheads with engineer boots were jumping off of the balcony, landing on people's heads. And all of a sudden I was like, this isn't really fun anymore. This is, this isn't Mm -hmm. pretend aggression. This is actual violence. Like people are getting seriously hurt. And that's around the time I started like really listening to the Smiths and the cure. Okay. I was like, well, I go to a Smith show or a cure show and there are girls there. (laughs) And the music is a lot like it's more gentle. So I still, liked hardcore yeah and i would go to the occasion and then like towards the end of the 80s as you know it became very sort of like conscious again totally. you know like earth crisis and shelter all that and gorilla biscuits yeah so like it became smarter and it's funny becoming good friends with john joseph because he terrified me mm-hmm. me like, too me too 85 sure. like he was like the scary him yeah. and his whole that whole crew i wouldn't even look him in the eye yeah they terrified me so much 100 percent, me too and um as far as the, well, I'm going to go back, but the conscious stuff too, like I feel like a lot of the punk rock was like anarchy in the UK, fuck your parents, fuck this, fuck that, fuck the government. But then when that whole positive like youth group thing came, was like, let's fix the planet. Let's help, let's help the animals, yeah. let's help the planet. We're drug free, we're positive. Like that was such an amazing time in New York. And it changed a lot too, for sure. Mm-hmm. Conscious. Um, obviously you, you got into vegetarianism and veganism before that. What, what, what got you into that? Like how old were you when you got into that? Well, like most people, I grew up with this weird paradox of loving animals and eating animals. Okay. You know, my house when I was growing up, we had tons of rescue animals, like lab rats and cats and lab rats, dogs. Wow. We had just like this menagerie of animals everywhere. And I loved the animals, but I also loved Burger King and McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And then I guess when I was around 19, I had this epiphany where I was petting a rescue cat that we had named Tucker. And all of a sudden I looked at Tucker and I was like, wow, I would do anything to protect this cat. You know? Yeah. And I realized like he has two eyes, a central nervous system and this really rich emotional life. And in that moment, a switch got thrown in my brain where I realized, oh, every animal mm-hmm. with two eyes and a central nervous system has a rich emotional life. And so I became a vegetarian then, then a vegan in 87. What, was your mom a vegetarian too or no? She dabbled because she yeah. was a hippie. So she liked tofu and bean sprouts yeah. but she also liked pepperoni pizza yeah <laughs> and it was super it was super hard back then too man it was a lot of oats a lot of oats falafels just yeah. a lot of like a lot of rice dojo. and beans um one thing one thing we skipped over, i want to ask you too how were you in school you're a good student did you do did you like sports did you graduate uh, i had this moment when i was really little i loved sports okay and then i think when i was around 11 years old Almost like in one day, I lost interest in sports and only was interested in music. Okay. You know, like... No skateboarding? I skateboarded, but in a, like... 
I was kind of mediocre. Yeah. And really for me, skateboard was like a way to go from point A to point B. Yeah. And I remember one day actually at the Anthrax, this was when it was in Stamford, the original mm -hmm. location. And there were all these like super cool skate kids back there doing tricks. Yeah. <laughs> and I got on like a vision board and I was like, well, let me try something. And I fell down in front. Like I, cause I knew Pushed how to like, ass in front of a bunch of I knew how to go on a flat surface from yeah. point A to point B. I didn't know how to do, do an ollie, anything. I mean, I couldn't even turn around. Yeah. And, and I tried to do something and the board flew out from under me and I fell on my back and I felt <laughs> so ashamed. I was like, no, no, I, I'll, I'll leave you? the skateboarding to the cool kids. That, yeah. that was it for you then? Yeah. I, I feel like for me, like, well, also, I didn't really like sports too much. And I, when I got to school, I realized that a lot of the jocks played sports and those are the guys always made fun of me. Yeah. But also skateboarding was almost, it wasn't a sport, but it was an activity. Like, okay, I, I'm not going to do this, but I'm going to ride a skateboard. And then I watched these videos and it was punk music playing in the background. It all connected to each other. You know what I mean? So it was kind of mm -hmm. like a, the skateboarding thing for me was more like a, I'm not doing sports. I'm not going to be like these guys. I'm going to ride a skateboard. Because before it was trendy. You know what I mean? Like before yeah. it was like a. And it had, I mean, I do remember like skateboarding had such a, a rebellious association. Yeah. Um, and also I did notice, and this made me kind of sad that my friends who were like the cool skate kids, they definitely had way more luck with girls than I did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it is about like. Were they fashionable? Like sort of in that, like, you know, like, uh, like a flex your head t-shirt mm -hmm. and a big pair of jeans. Yeah. And like, I guess that was like catnip for ladies in 19. Maybe cool bleach tips and stuff. Maybe like the gleaming the yeah. cube vibe or. And I just, I remember one time <laughs> I tried to bleach my hair in was it high school or like early college. And it went so wrong. I don't know if you <laughs> ever had this experience where like it ended up turning this like sick orange color. This yeah, is I've back had, when I've I had, had it before. Hair. You know, and like, <laughs> so I didn't look like a cool skate kid with like blonde tips. It, I just, I looked like some weird, Muppet. like a mangy Muppet. Yeah. <laughs> was there, um for the animal rights stuff, so back then, w were there like marches? Not marches, were there stuff you started getting into too? Or was it just, you became a vegetarian and vegan, but there wasn't much internet to, to give information, was there back then? Yeah, there was, there were health food stores. Yeah, health food stores, yeah. And Prana. So, yeah, I used to go to Prana all the time. Prana was awesome. Shout out to Chalk. He used to work there and Mark from Super Touch. I got it. Oh, wait. Chalk from um, Orin. Yeah, yeah. He used to work there. Yeah, I remember. He used to date my friend Rory, who was yeah, also- Yeah, Rory's my friend too. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. I haven't talked to them in decades. I talked to Chalk a lot. Rory lives oh. somewhere. She's married. Um, she's put on those great animal rights shows. and Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Small world. Um, Rory Krevlin, shout out. Yep. So, but Prana Amnesty International. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. but in the, in the eighties, finding out about anything, like I remember going to Prana or some health food store and like, you'd see like a flyer for an animal rights march in Washington square park and you'd go and there'd be 20 people. Yeah. You know, like someone with a PETA t-shirt Yeah, <laughs> and, and it was nice, but like veganism at that point, 87, 88 into the early nineties was so small. Nobody like, knew what that word meant. I remember. Yeah. There was Angelica's kitchen. Yep. And dojos dojos yeah a lot of dojos the, mm -hmm. like the tofu and brown rice for 2.99 cheap yes yeah. yes yes um but it was hard i mean definitely animal rights and veganism in the late 80s was pretty obscure that i mean there was the peter singer book and uh john robbins died for a new america but yep. apart from that it was it was definitely obscure so 
I know I know you said like at that last show at the Ritz, you started like stepping away from hardcore, getting into the cure and the Smiths and stuff like that. And obviously uh, the Smiths had meet his murder out at that point too, mm-hmm. wasn't it? 88. Um, so you started getting into that world, but also obviously you're a punk rock kid. Um, so how'd you get from that getting into the cure and stuff to getting into DJing? I needed a job. Okay. And so in 1985, I had dropped out of college because I was having the worst panic attacks. Like panic attacks that were so bad, I just couldn't function. What was your major? I was a philosophy major. Okay. So I dropped out of college and moved home, and I felt like the biggest, saddest loser in the world because I was. Like I was broke. I was sleeping on my mom's couch when I was like 20 years old. Okay. And all my friends are off at college and having great relationships and like learning skills that were going to make them rich and successful in life. And I'm like having panic attacks on my mom's couch. Damn. And, you know, I didn't have $20 to my name. Why was it happening? Just because you're stressing out about the future? and Yeah, just being a high-strung, neurotic kid. Okay. Um, And I started hanging out at this tiny, weird dive bar in Port Chester, New York called The Beat. Okay. And the, so random. And the owner felt sorry for me. And so he let me DJ on Monday nights. And he paid me $20 for six hours of DJing. Damn. Which I thought was great. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, he also got to drink for free. Okay. This was obviously pre sobriety. Okay. And I only had 30 records. So I'd borrow records from other people so I could play more music. Mm-hmm. And it was Joy Division and The Cure, but also some early hip hop like Grandmaster Flash. Yeah. And, you know, then Run DMC when their first records came out. Were you a hip hop head before that? Like into it or? Yeah. I mean, I have this, I had this one moment, which is like the coolest record buying moment of my entire life is I was in a record store in DC visiting. I was visiting a friend in DC and I went into a record store in Georgetown, I think in 19, yeah, the summer of 82. Okay. And I bought two records at this point i had barely any money i had no record collection mm-hmm. the two records i bought were in my eyes by minor threat and the message awesome. by grandmaster flash that's amazing and i was it's like perfect combo that was a good record and actually <laughs> i just i sold all my records and gave the money to charity oh wow and in my eyes got the most of every record i'm sure it was original pressing two thousand dollars for wow. a seven inch that's and amazing I, and that's oh. original shit too that's awesome it was on red vinyl yeah yeah so did you go, did you go to hip hop shows ever back then or in the late eighties I started I I, it, I had I was also a hip hop DJ okay um, until a similar thing happened like I got scared out of hardcore because I got too violent mm-hmm. I got scared out of hip hop because every time I'd go to a hip hop club someone would get shot yeah for sure um, but I love and also I wasn't very good at it you know like so I was DJing at this place called Mars yeah and Mars bar I've been there on the uh, west side. Right? There, there was Mars Bar, which is okay. a tiny little bar on in the in East Village. Okay. And then there's Mars the Club, which you probably went to. Yeah, it was on West Side Highway. So Fishbone there, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I was a house music DJ and a dance hall reggae DJ, but also a hip hop DJ. And one night I was DJing with Clark Kent. Do you know yeah, Clark Kent? Yeah. He's and got the biggest sneaker collection ever. He's like, you know who Clark Kent is. And legendary. Clark was so good, I stopped. I was like, I can't compete with this. Like wow. I will never, I will never be even one one hundredth as good a hip hop DJ as him. And so I got much more into like house music and techno as a result of that. Okay. And so I know we're going back and forth. The Vatican Commandos, how long did that go for? They kept going for a while after I left. Okay. I left in 83 and they went till about 86. Did you have any amazing shows opening for some of your heroes back then or? 
Yeah, I mean, I we played with Flipper, and then I got drafted to sing with Flipper because they had two. Flipper had two singers, and yeah, one of the singers was in jail, and I knew all the songs. Oh, so wow. I was the I was one of two singers in Flipper for two days in Connecticut. Awesome. They don't they don't remember this. Okay. Because one of the guys from Flipper lives in Beechwood Canyon, and I see him at Gelson's every now and then. No way. And he's like, <laughs> and he'll say he's like he's like yeah we believe you that you were the singer in Flipper for today's but they're like we're so high we have no recollection of it wow but like we we got to open for who else I think we opened for Bad Brains at Pogo's um and then one of our claims to fame was one of Agnostic Front's first shows was opening up for us no way in like 82 or 80, wow. like yeah that's crazy. I have to find that flyer somehow. Obviously, man. they went on to much bigger things than yeah. Vatican Commandos. <laughs> but that. So, so how long? So when you started DJing, obviously doing hip hop, and then after that, Clark Kent. Um, so when did you start making your own music, like the music, like the electronic? music? Yeah, electronic music. Yeah. In the mid '80s, I started buying old electronic equipment at tag sales. Okay. Because it was all I could afford. Okay. And then, um, I guess in like. 89 i got my first record deal with a label called instinct records okay and i signed i was so desperate for a record deal i signed whatever was put in front of me at that point they'd never made a record they didn't have an office they didn't Damn. have employees all they had was a name <laughs> okay and i worked as like i ran their office so i was like clean the kitchen clean the office make records under different names so it seemed like they had multiple artists on the label yeah yeah <laughs> like their first compilation album was me under five different names wow and i would go to like ups and the post office to like send out records and yeah so i was like the office manager and the musician so people would order stuff through mail order probably back then yeah we just had, i mean dance uh like you send it to like different like the few djs who are playing house music and techno in like mm -hmm. 1990 91 okay so the first record was the first record animal rights in 1996 no the first i put out a single my first single was called mobility okay and it sold a thousand copies and i was amazed at that because that's awesome for like the vatican yeah. commandos our first seven inch sold 200 copies and i felt like the biggest deal in the world because yeah, yeah. I now had a record that sold a thousand copies. It's pretty big for back then, yeah. And then my second single was called Go and it used some of the music from Twin Peaks and it became a, a European hit and sold a million copies. What? Yeah. What year was that? That was 91. So I went from like, Did I, mean, you... I was making between two and $5,000 a year and then all of a sudden like flying back and forth to, to the UK to play at raves wow. to be on top of the pops to do all like Germ German TV shows Dutch TV shows etc for go for yeah and then the rave scene exploded and I sort of got really involved with that did you clear that sample with Twin Peaks luckily it wasn't a sample <laughs> okay it was be I here okay and this is maybe too much minutiae i wanted <laughs> i wanted to sample it but it was too slow okay so i replayed it and that saved me so much legal hassle wow. I, like I, I basically i tried to steal and i couldn't wow. so i had to replay it and it, it, the nice thing about that is from that i became friends with david lynch okay yeah that's huge that's awesome and we've been friends ever since and that's probably like a childhood hero hero to you too for oh sure. my god yeah i mean he's like I mean, it's one of the weirdest things about 
having a strange life as a quasi-public figure musician is I've managed to be friends with every person, almost every person I idolized yeah. as a teenager. That's amazing. You know, like I went on tour with David Bowie. Yeah. Um, hung out countless times with Joe Strummer. Uh, just all these, John Lydon and I, he was even nice to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Lou Reed, we worked on his studio together. Like all these, like, like somehow I managed to like meet and become friends with all these people I idolized. It, I it's great up. when you can meet somebody you look up to and you have them that come on this pedestal and then you meet them and they're actually awesome. Although sometimes, I'm sure you've experienced this, you meet them and they're just a dick. 100%. And then you're like, so like the other day I was out and Neil Young was at a party. Oh, shit. And someone said, do you want to meet Neil Young? And I'm like, you know what? No, I don't. Because I'm sure he's a nice guy, but I love Neil Young. What if he's a dick when I meet him? Yeah. What if he's just having a bad day? And that ruins 10 of my favorite songs. So I'm like, you know what? Nope. I don't need a, I don't need a handshake and a picture. Let me just let him be a stranger so I can love his music. I love that too. Um, my wife got to meet Robert Smith and... When we looked at him, she said, she goes, I don't speak English, and just shook his hand. She was yeah. so nervous. She, didn't want to, she got a picture, but she didn't want to say anything, but she didn't want to have a conversation and see if he was a jerk or not. Um, is it true, though? When, when, so when Animal Rights came out, that was, that was such a powerful title for you to have back then because it wasn't like a thing. Mm -hmm. So obviously I know what inspired that, but what was the reaction to that? Well, so in the mid-90s, 1995, I had a really good year. I put out this album called Everything is Wrong that was... I think Spin, no, Village Voices album of the year, something like that. And then... Were you sober during this time? I was sober for a while, and then I relapsed during the tour for uh, okay, Everything is that. Wrong. Okay, okay, okay. And, and I was started doing film music for this Michael Mann movie. Um, one of the singles was a big hit single in Europe. I did Lollapalooza. I went on tour with the Chili Peppers and the Flaming Lips. Damn, like, 95 sir. was like a big year. Yeah. And then I thought, you know what? I really miss making punk rock. Okay. And I was listening to like, sort of like, like DRI and Biohazard, the stuff that's sort of like on the edge wow. of like, and Pantera, like sort of like punk metal. So you were keeping up with stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I got real, so I made this album Animal Rights, which is this very noisy, I wouldn't even say punk record. It's like yeah. a metal punk record. And I started having panic attacks again. My <sighs> mom was diagnosed with cancer she died. I released Animal Rights Dude. and I go on tour and rather than like being on tour with the Chili Peppers and the Flaming Lips playing, playing to 10,000 people a night, I was literally at times playing to 30 or 40 people a night. Wow. Like I remember doing the Animal Rights tour. I played a show in Paris at this place called the Arapaho. It's like a legendary old punk rock mm -hmm. club. A hundred people came. By the end of the show, there were 25 people in the audience. Damn. Like that's how depressing it was. Like, it was pretty dark. Wow. Did you feel like giving up? I didn't. I mean, I thought about like going back to school and like getting my master's and becoming a teacher. Um, and then I made the album play, which I thought was going to oh, be yeah. my last record. I was like, oh, that, yeah. this is my last record. I guess I'll like produce other people, maybe teach philosophy. So, but before that, is it true that Axel Rose called you? Oh, I spent time with Axel in LA helping to produce Chinese democracy. Oh, wow. How did, that, how did that connection... That's telling... I, I, haven't, I haven't done this before. Like this sort of like life story. I know, I love it. I love and it. And it kind too. of reminds me of... Um, <laughs> did you ever see the movie Big Fish? What was mm -hmm. it called? Yeah. Where like the guy's telling his... It's like his dad's story. And he's like, that can't be true. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... Hearing yourself talk about it. This is surreal shit. It's I'm like... like <laughs> how did I manage to like 
I, I DJed for Run DMC. I know. Et cetera. You know, like became friends with David Lynch, helped Axl Rose to produce a record. How did that happen? Like how did that connection happen? He called me. Just randomly. Out of the blue, he called me in like 97 and said, I really like your album Animal Rights. They're only, okay, this is weird. So the album Animal Rights, which got, <laughs> it sold nothing, got terrible reviews. There are three people I know who liked it. Okay. Um, Bono. Wow. Actually four people. Bono told me it was one of his favorite records of the year. Wow. Um, I retire right after that. <laughs> Joe Strummer told me how much he loved it. Sick. Axl Rose told me how much he loved Random. it. Random. But the best is I got a piece of fan mail from Terrence Trent Darby. Whoa. On Terrence Trent Darby stationery. This like purple stationery. I hope you still have that, man. I wish I did. I don't know where it That's would be. That's some frameable shit. That's it awesome. Was, and it was like this purple stationery. And it was just him saying like, I know you're having a hard time with this record. I think what you're doing is really interesting. Like, just be courageous. And I was like, wow, really nice. Damn. Terrence Trent Darby. I've never met him. Yeah. But like, out of the blue. And so Axel. Did you believe it was him when he called you? Axel? Yeah. Like this Axel I think, like, yeah, because my manager had said. Okay. Axel wants your number. And I was like, what? Um, so that, they were massive then too. Yeah. I mean, this was, and he was like this reclusive guy who lived up in the hills. Yeah. So I spent a couple of weeks in LA at some studio with him and guns and like whoever was in the, was it Rumbo studios? It was one of those big, like ocean way. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Sunset sound. I don't remember. Okay. It was somewhere in Hollywood. I okay. didn't know LA that well at the time. Okay. And, it was, I realized I was absolutely not the right person to produce it because I'd never produced a rock band before. Yeah, that's, that's And so I had to like tell him, I was like, I'm sorry, like, I, this is too big of a job it be so for like a little kid who makes digital music in his bedroom. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> How was it hanging out with Axel at that time? Was he, he was nice? great. Was, yeah. He hates me now. I still don't know why, but like he really hates me. And you know that for a fact? Oh, yeah. People have told me, like, they're like, and maybe it's because I decided not to produce the record. I don't know, but like, apparently, like, I'm on his shit list. Weird. Yeah. Did you hear from after you, like, graciously bowed out of doing mm -hmm. the record and hear him after nope. that? It was like radio silence. And he was actually really nice to me. It's funny. He was, a, he was just a good guy. But like, I don't know what I did to piss him off, but like, apparently, he really hates me. Wow. Um, okay. So then play comes out. Which, quote me if I'm, I mean, if I'm wrong on this quote, is it the, one of the most licensed albums ever? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the licenses were for, like, indie movies, student films, etc. But, yeah, we licensed, because when it first was released, I my career was over. Yeah. I had made Animal Rights. It failed. My mom was dead. I was broke. I was That's panicking. Brutal. I was this bottoming out alcoholic. And I was like, and play. How I, old were you? 33. Okay. Um. And I made it in my bedroom and like with a budget of $10, you know, like that's crazy. A couple man. of the songs on that album were recorded to cassette. Wow. That's how Which ones? I loved body rock and I loved um, honey. And it was outside. the song, their song ever loving. Okay. My weakness. And then there's some other, I don't remember the name of it. One of the other sort of obscure songs towards so you living in Manhattan at that point, living on Mott street. Okay. Cause it was cheap. Shout out to Vinny stigma, Mott street. Yeah. Legend. Okay. Go ahead. Um, yeah, actually, the uh, what was the band you roadied for? Sick of It All. Yeah, Sick of It All. They rehearsed in the building I was in. What was that studio called? And, 
well, it was 262 Mott Street. Yeah. And there were these like sub-basements and Sonic Youth, Iggy Pop, uh, Helmet, Damn. Hold, Butthole Surfers, everyone rehearsed down there. That's awesome. I definitely was there then for sure. Um, I think at least, because I used to see one of the guys in Sick of It All, I forget who, I would see him out front and I never talked to him because yeah, yeah. I was kind of intimidated. But yeah. like, <laughs> um, yeah, so then Play came out and it was supposed to be like this failure of an album that was like, again, it was going to be my last record yeah. recorded in my bedroom and it went on to be this weird It's insane. Success. What, yeah. out, what label was that on? V2 here and Mute Records everywhere else. Yeah, so that like pretty much changed everything for you, right? Mm-hmm. It sold like 2 million or something when it came no, out? No, over 10 million now. Wow, man. So diamonds, you have a diamond record. Well, 10 million worldwide. It's amazing, man. Yeah. Well, you like, how, how did that, feel like how did that change everything for you it's it was great the timing was impeccable. it was for everything you were going through the timing was perfect and it was so because again it was supposed to be my last record yeah of course and like the first show we did for the play tour was in the basement of the virgin megastore in union square wow and my manager fought with the store manager so we could go on at 6 p.m so that we would get commuters coming home smart hoping hoping that some commuters might buy the record Wow. And I think there were 40 people there. And then... That's crazy. The tour... So, like, we did this... The tour started small, playing to 100 people a night, and then it was 1,000 people a night, and then 5,000, and then 10,000, and then 20,000, and then it just kept... So, and... It was great. And I was dating movie stars, and I suddenly was getting invited (laughs) to all these parties. And so... It was great until... It went completely wrong. But before it went wrong, how did the Southside thing happen with Gwen Stefani? Oh. Uh, it's an amazing song. She and Tony came to a studio where I was working because I guess they were friends with someone at the record label. Okay. And this, she offered to sing on it. So it was really her. Like yeah. she was just like good natured. I haven't really talked to her much since then, but yeah. like she was just great. I mean, you could tell that she was like this woman who had come from the sort of like punk rock ska totally. world of just like, yeah, sure. You're making a record. I'll help you out. Mm-hmm. Like it was very low key and easy going. You think that that video with her and everything took you to a different audience like that helped Especially out? in America. Yeah. Like oddly enough, Southside outside of America, no one knows that. It okay. was never, a, it was only a hit single here. But it's really big here. Yeah. Because that luckily like we made this really expensive, good-looking video right at the peak of the album's success. Mm-hmm. So, like, MTV was playing it all the time. And so how many, how many videos, like, how many singles off that record? Like, did the video for how many songs? You think? Six. Six or seven. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. And the songs were on the radio, I remember. Yeah, it was, it was I have to say, it was great. Especially because, sort of getting back to the one life, one chance aspect <laughs> yeah, of this. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I was also drinking and I was drinking every night I, st- I discovered ecstasy Damn. and I was I became terrible like I became this cliched rock star where wow. I was like going out every night and like sleeping with anybody and it got it got so then the next like five or six years pre-sobriety it just kept getting darker and darker and darker but how long was that wave with plague how, how long did that go for like how many you toured a lot on that. Like, how was that the, high? The, was how long was it? Were the like a tour, years? the tour for play was twenty eight months. 
it's one of the reasons it's I don't tour anymore. Yeah, because I hear like you. a twenty when you've done a twenty eight month That's tour. That's insane. I mean, there were some breaks, but it was like twenty eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next album was called Eighteen, which did okay. I mean, it sold like five million copies. Still awesome. And then the album after that failed in the United States, but it was my biggest album. It was called Hotel. Okay, it was a huge album in Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, and but at that point, like the alcoholism was like. I was being completely destroyed by it. Well, you think you're you're losing opportunities and burning bridges and all that stuff being alcoholic? Yeah. And also industry. And also I hate to say this, my focus in the mid two thousands, what became on success. Like I started thinking like, what producer can I work with? I have to write with, so I have to make a hit. Yeah. Who's going to give me a hit? Keep that high. How can I like have the right publicist? Who's yeah. going to get me on the red carpet? Who's going to get me in Us Weekly? Who's going to, you know, like it, Damn. it, and it really was like all driven by like fear and desperation were you, were you, and alcoholism. Yeah. Were you burning through managers and book agents and stuff like that too? Like somehow they all stay with you. Yeah. Which amazes me because I wouldn't have, like, I mean, I, I was terrible. So the, uh, the Eminem stuff, mm-hmm. what did that come from? Um, the song without me, obviously that's the diss song, but yeah, was initially he was coming out being homophobic and you said something in the press. Well, so here's what happened. At least this is how I remember it. Um, and the weird thing is, I, I actually, feel weird asking that question. I don't no, know it's why. fine. I'm sorry. No, it's, but I want to talk about it. I, it was if, so if insane. the roles are reversed, I'd ask me that question. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've never met him. Well, I've sort of met him, but he actually seems like smart, creative. I, I know, dude. I know. He seems like a, I mean, like, so I don't dislike him mm-hmm. at all because I don't know him. So you remember, okay, we are talking about The Cure and The Smiths. Yes. How like in the 80s, modern rock radio was R.E.M. Yeah. And then it was, it was Nir- safe. And Nirvana. And mm-hmm. it was like, you know, smart and progressive. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... In the late '90s, it became rape rock. You know, it be and, and I even like some of the music, but it became yeah. like Limp Biscuit and Disturbed, and it just got harder and darker and harder and darker, and it really disturbed me because you su- suddenly you had lyrics that were misogynistic, mm-hmm. that were homophobic, that were violent, and I started speaking out about this. Yeah, and I was doing interviews and I was asking journalists. I was like, so. I said, so Eminem has songs about killing women and brutalizing gay people, and you all love him. What if he had songs about killing Jews and brutalizing black people? Yeah. Would you still love him? Would he still get played on the radio? Would he still get played on MTV? And I wasn't singling him out. I was just saying, like, it's an example of hypocrisy and trying to say to people, like, bigotry is bigotry. Discrimination is discrimination. Discrimination against women is just as bad as discrimination against Jewish people. Discrimination against gay people is the same as discrimination. It's all bad. Yeah. Somehow he heard about this and he got mad. And I remember this. Yeah, where were you when you first heard the song? I'm curious too. So then in, (laughs) I guess it was the summer of 2000, I was doing an MTV interview and the journalist asked me, they said, so why do you think think Eminem has all these issues with you? And I was being funny. And I said, I don't know, maybe he's gay and he has a crush on me. Wow. Turns out this did not go over too well with him wow. and his 
posse. <laughs> posse. And then he made That's some old shit. I love that guy. He made the without me video. Yeah. He attacked me at an MTV Music Awards. What and, do you mean attacked you? Like tried to physically come after you? Yeah. I Wow. Yeah. He actually I still have this. He drew a picture of him strangling me and handed it to me at the MTV Music Awards. You still have it. I still have it. Oh my god. It's actually a really good drawing. I got to say like and to his credit, like he started on one side. This is kind of adorable. No, he started way. on one side, then crossed it out, turned it over, and drew himself strangling me. He must and have drew, drew it that night, knowing you were there. I don't know, but surprisingly good drawing. And so I've got oh, that framed sh- somewhere. Dude, I want to see but, that. But then every night on tour, when he was touring, he had someone come out dressed like me. Heard about this? And he pretended to shoot them with a shotgun. And so for the next couple of years, <sighs> everywhere I went. Little 14-year-old kids would yell from the distance, like, nobody listens to techno. <laughs> and I was, that, like, that, that, I was like, should I be concerned or should I, like, send Eminem, like, royalty checks? Because, like... Yeah, I was going to say that. How did that affect you in a positive way with your sales and people looking... It definitely, it hurt me in that, like, he was, and still is, like, one of the biggest musicians in the world. Yes. And it definitely, like, in the States, like, a lot of people certainly understandably took his side okay yeah but you didn't see a spike in your record sales or anything like that or Mm -mm. never got an apology never got hit up by anybody from his camp no no threats i keep waiting because i know he's in i believe he's in the 12-step program yeah i keep waiting for an amends but like if i never get it that's perfectly fine that'd be pretty amazing but the thing is like in a weird way, I feel like if we had grown up together, we would have been really good friends because we're both like poor white trash, mm-hmm. single mom. Yeah. Embraced African-American music. Like he embraced hip hop. I embraced house music. Like yeah. there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. And I, I wish him well. Yeah. I think he's an interesting, talented public figure. Yeah. And I feel, I feel like for him back then it was all shock value. Regardless if he really felt that way, what he mm-hmm. was saying was very impactful to young people. And disrespecting yeah. women and, and uh Well, that's the thing. In hindsight, I think some of those guys who were homophobic, who were misogynistic, I think some of them were just bigots. In his case, I think he was being smart and playing a role, mm-hmm. but his 12-year-old fans didn't know that. Yeah, 100%. You know, they just heard misogyny. They just heard homophobia, and they thought, oh, one of our heroes is legitimizing bigotry. You know? Yeah, and nobody, nobody, confront, nobody really confronted them on that at all. I don't know if anybody would confront him on that since maybe just recently they have, but, and everything you're talking about now kind of fast forwards to like, not to get into that topic, but R. Kelly too, the mm. same kind of thing with women right now that's happening too. And people still praising him, buying his records, his sales spiked because well, if you remember TV show, Chris Brown, same thing. You remember yeah. like, I, I was really taken aback by that. Like mm-hmm. Chris Brown beat up Rihanna, like you know, it's horrifying. Yeah. And then went on to sell millions of records and people love him. It reminds me of that there's that that Chris Rock, who I really think should be president. Um, that, yeah. <laughs> that, there's a Chris Rock line where he's talking about misogyny and homophobia in music. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm paraphrasing him, but he's like, he's like, so he's like, I'll be in a club and the, the lyrics will be horrifying and misogynistic and women are dancing. Yeah. And if you ask the women like, aren't you listening to the lyrics? And they'll say like, oh, he's not talking about us. Exactly. Exactly. There is some sad truth to that. And also like, I really, the horrifying thing, 
and granted, I've never worked at a record label, but I feel like if an artist makes money, everyone around him just turns a blind eye. Like R. Kelly. That's like, what's happening right now, yeah. My friend Jim DeRogatis okay. in Chicago is one of the people who first saw the R. Kelly tape. Okay. This is 15 years ago. Like a, yeah. a, a long time ago. Yeah. And he said it was so disgusting and so horrifying, and he gave it to the police. And nothing happened. Wow. And nothing, and so it it's kind of like with some of the, like Harvey Weinstein, I mean, I don't want to get mm -hmm. in trouble, but like yeah. a lot of these guys, like it's been going on for a long time. A long time. Everybody knew. A lot of payoffs, a lot of stuff going on. Like but it's almost like as long as someone is powerful and making money, people go along with it, which is kind of like what's, there's, there's a quote like that, like, you know, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to say nothing. It's a great quote. Whose quote is that? I forget. I'm going to say it's yours. Okay. Um, how, how did you end up covering Creep at um, Glastonbury? Oh, because, I mean, this was back the height of my weird yeah, we watched it the other day, success. Actually. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, now if I played Glastonbury, I'd probably be on at, like, one in the afternoon <laughs> on, like, Friday, <laughs> like, like, in a tent with Weird Al or something like opening for Weird Al. No, because I, I heard they didn't want to play it. And so, so that's the thing. So Radiohead were, there were the way Glastonbury works, there are three headliners, like similar to Coachella, like Friday, yeah. Saturday, Sunday. They were the Saturday headliner. I was the Sunday headliner. They very publicly said they wouldn't play Creep. And then they said, but if anyone else wants to play it, go right ahead. And wow. I was like, okay. So that was a known thing amongst the festival. Yeah. And Creep is a real easy song to cover. It's only got three chords. Mm-hmm. So, it was great. We watched it the other day. It was awesome. No, People were so excited. I haven't, I never watched it, but oh, yeah. like. <laughs> we just watched it the other day. Also, what do, you, what do you think your life would have been if you didn't grow up so close to Manhattan? Like you were in Connecticut, you could go back and forth and be part of it. Like if you grew up in the Midwest or something. That's such a good question. And I sometimes wonder about that. Like, yeah, like we got lucky. Like you, me, yeah. lots of us who grew up with easy access to like a dynamic world city. Man. Like yeah. in, in some ways I got really lucky because like I didn't like Connecticut when I was growing up there, but like the schools were good. Yeah. It was safe and dirty, nasty New York was only 40 minutes away. So close train. So we whatever, could like yeah. take Metro North in, go to rocks in your head, go to canal jeans, canal jeans on Broadway. To, that was awesome. Go to CBs and then like run back to grand central, get on the train and go home and sleep in our comfy little beds. Exactly. You know, so, so just imagine growing up somewhere else. I can't even imagine like not being exposed to that. What kind of person I would have turned out too? you know, like being so close to New York. Yeah. Imagine like, but I guess a lot of cities always had that, like that little sliver of counterculture. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Montana, you know, like I was talking to Reggie Watts who grew up in Montana mm -hmm. and he would go into Bozeman, Montana to find the punk rock club in Bozeman. That's amazing. You know, with the five other people in Montana who are interested in seeing MDC in 1984 or whatever. You don't even think about a scene in Montana ever. I don't think about it. If I played a show there, you played a show in Montana? No, I just know that David Lynch <laughs> and Reggie Watts are from there. Okay. That's the sum total of my knowledge of Montana. So some pe good people from there. So how, how many years now you've been sober? 10. Well, I had a lot of sobriety early on. I got sober when I was 13. Okay. That lasted a couple 13. of years. So how long you... I started you drinking and doing drugs when I was nine. Jesus, Stopped man. when I was 13. Started again when I was like 15. And then I had eight years of sobriety from like 87 to 95. And... 
now 10 years. And I think, I hope it lasts. I don't, I don't know why it wouldn't. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why either. You seem really focused on everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think you started doing that so young? Uh, fear. A lot of, I mean, part of it's just alcoholism. Like I have- Runs in your family? Yeah. My dad, my, I mean- Oh, it's your dad, yeah. Like my grandfather. Um, like on, the, on my mom's side and my dad's side, there's just like tons of addiction and alcoholism. So it's very hereditary. Mm-hmm. Um, You're a very nervous kid. Oh, yeah. And like, especially when I was really young, like when you drink and do drugs, one, you get to hang out with the cool kids- and two, it takes your social anxiety and just dials it down. Yeah. Perfect. You know, and then later, oops, da, 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 da. Um, later it was sort of like a way of like talking to girls, yeah, having like feeling confidence that I never really had. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then it just, obviously because I'm sober now, it be, just became so habitual to the point where like I couldn't. I couldn't go out and meet people yeah. without being drunk or high. What was the final straw that we're like, I'm, I'm getting sober and I'm, I'm done with this? It was, there's that Steven Tyler quote, maybe someone else has said it, where like, <laughs> it's when you finally, finally are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. Um, I remember I had gone, it was October 17th, 2008. Okay. And I was playing a fundraiser for Christian Gillibrand, the okay. senator from New York. Wow up in Hudson, New York. And I got drunk, went to a bar afterwards, got even more drunk, bought cocaine, did a Jesus. whole bunch of cocaine. Eight o'clock in the morning, couldn't sleep, so I went back to the train station and I was on Amtrak going back to the city and I was just so sick. And just like, and I, I realized like I'd been sick and hung over every day for like the last five years. Damn. And it, and it wasn't super dark place. And it wasn't fun hungover. Yeah. Like when you're 16, you get drunk. Like the hangovers are kind of cute. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but then when I was like, what, like 42 and like just sick, like yeah. just like this disgusting, like you just, you can't think straight. You feel nauseous. Your cells hurt. Yeah. You, you look bloated and like garbage. And I was like, I'm, I'm done. And I went to an AA meeting on first and first in New York in a yoga studio. Wow. Um, and I just sat there and said, I'm an alcoholic. My, my name is Moby. I'm an alcoholic. And I was like, I was done. That was it. Wow. And, and it seems like you probably care more about animals than you do yourself during that time. Yeah. Well, that's one of <laughs> that's the reasons... Crazy. Why? Like, because I never relapsed on veganism, you know, yeah. from, from 87 Still. until today. Like, mm-hmm. that to me was like, I, I don't judge other people. Yeah. But like, if it was me, like, I hope if I was starving to death and the only way I could survive was to kill an animal, I'd rather die myself. I hope. Granted, yeah. I've never been in that position yeah. and my perspective might change <laughs> a lot. It's easy to say, but yeah, I, I hear yeah. you on that. Yeah. Wow. Um I think we talked about a lot. And then also, where did the name Moby come from? Oh. Because I read about it. I'm going to make sure it's true. So this is what my parents told me, that I'm related to Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick. Yep. Um, That's amazing. And so my legal name is Richard Melville Hall. Yeah. And when I was born, my dad gave me the nickname Moby. And now I'm 53 years old, and I'm still stuck with my infant joke nickname. (laughs) It's a great name, though. It's a, I mean, the, the thing is, 
people always assumed like like Sting, Madonna, like yeah. Bono, like you give yourself a name. I was like, no, I've had this since I was 10 minutes old. Like it's I probably, if left to my own devices, I never would have thought of a cool name for myself. It's pretty amazing. And so also, I know you have one tattoo of the cross. That's the only tattoo you have? Yeah. Because um, that was, I had a, about 10 years as being a really serious Christian. And I got this. I didn't even know that. I got this tattoo in 1995 because I knew that my time as a serious Christian was coming to an end. And I sort of got it as a reminder. Okay. You know. So you're not, so you're not a Christian anymore since then? No, I mean, I like. Who got you into that? Was you how you were raised? Like, how did you get into Christianity? You find it yourself when you get older? Oh, one of my early DJing jobs was at an all ages youth club in Connecticut that was run by a church. Okay. And the youth minister and I were talking and he sort of talked me into being a Christian. Wow. Um, <laughs> so you started going to church and doing all oh, that? Oh yeah. I, I taught Bible study. I went on Christian retreats. Wow. Um, and I would have these, in the, especially in the early nineties, like I would be DJing at a sex club or DJing <laughs> at Limelight. Limelight's crazy. Four o'clock in the morning, I'd like go back to my apartment on 14th Street, wake up early and go to a Christian retreat in Massachusetts. Wow. It was a really weird dichotomy. But um, but then time passed and I was like, you know what? The teachings of Christ are great. Like mm-hmm. forgiveness, humility, mm-hmm. non-materialism, non-judgmentalism, Christianity, I don't have much interest in. Like it, especially modern Christianity yeah. is pretty horrifying. And also the universe is so big and complicated. Yeah. So if I have to define myself now, it's like I'm a, I don't know, a Taoist, Sufi, quantum mechanics, loving... Bald hippie. Bald hippie, mm-hmm. vegan, <laughs> something or other. I don't know, like, yeah. Do you feel like you're an optimistic person? Uh, about, it depends life, about just what. Life, like optimistic with just how you live your life every day. Like, do you have rituals to make your day better? Like, I, I know you're always playing music and... You know, you always do, you do yoga. Like, well, there's something to get you through the day. It keeps you positive with all the shit. Cause you go hard on Trump. You go hard on what's happening in the world right now. There's so much negative shit. Mm-hmm. So what, what is, what do you, what is, what do you consider yourself in that way? Just mm-hmm. a realist or. Yeah. In terms of, well, when I first got sober, I heard this old timey alcoholic. Cause the meeting I, where I got sober is this meeting called living now. Okay. And it was like bottomed out Bowery drunks. Like I met this one guy who'd been sober for 40 some odd years and he wore around his neck the last bed bug he ever pulled off of himself what? encased what? in lucite. So like, these are like, like, what and he was fuck? like in his seventies and he'd been like one of those bums on the Bowery just like passed out in his yeah. own diarrhea. Um, Damn. And someone said something early on, which I really liked, which was self care is a form of service, you know, cause my life, insofar as I can, like it's dedicated to the idea of activism and service. Yeah. You know, like it is, I mean, you do so much for the animals. I, I appreciate that, I man. Try, it's just like my, cause my own, when, the more selfish I've been, the less happy I've been. Mm-hmm. And the, and I'm not like when I was like really materialistic and like, as I said, like hiring publicists to try and get me on a better red carpet yeah. somewhere. Like it was just, it was gross. Yeah. And so that selfishness, didn't work out so now insofar as i can i just try to wake up every day to say like how can i be of service but at the same time it's a selfless act being a vegan you know you you're you're mm-hmm. you know what i mean like it's not really it's not about you it's about the animals and so you do that the whole time regardless of how crazy you got doing drugs and drinking you still cared about animals you know what i mean like yeah there's always that idea that like you're doing something for a cause bigger than you are yeah you know and that is 
it's just it makes life more interesting yeah in a weird way it makes life easier you know when you have a purpose outside of yourself that answers a lot of questions for you like you know like what am i going to do with my life it's like oh i'm going to try and help i'm going to try and be of service i'm going to try and yeah. make things better um it's a and i because i look at my friends or me in the past where it's like when you're just focused on your own selfish concerns mm-hmm. you end up in like a really dark sad place 100 percent um well, I think we covered a lot of things. Also, shout out to Teeny Tiny, your restaurant in New York. I was always to go there, hoping to see you. I was always in there with my wife. So thanks for having that spot. Oh. What street was that on? It was on Rivington. Yeah, I think it's been closed now for a while. It was going after you moved away. I I ended my involvement with it in like two thousand and six. You remember that spot? It was like it was super cool. Yeah, super teeny. Um, and then congrats with Little Pine. Thank it's you. Great, great restaurant and. Um, so I pretty much covered everything I'm on with you. Do you have any, which, what would be your top five punk bands? Uh, I mean, I have kind of an obvious list. You wrote some on my page that day, so I think, yeah. I, but I know so, Kraut was in there. I had to put <clears throat> Kraut in there. I feel yeah. like Kraut are like, <laughs> there, there's certain bands that are just so overlooked and Kraut, like the song Unemployed and Matinee, that mm-hmm. seven inch, just, it's great. So um, Kraut? But I wouldn't put Kraut in my top five. Okay, okay so uh, DRI. Great. I love, I don't know why, like, DRI is awesome. I played what, like, I think the second DRI, some of that, like, crazy fast stuff for my ex girlfriend. And so she just, fast. she just started laughing. She was like, What is this? Yeah. And I was like, I was like, They kind of invented speed metal. You play so many songs, like 30 minutes or something. Yeah. It's like a. So DRI, Bad Brains. Of course. Um, lately, it's not a hardcore band, but I love. That second damned album, Machine okay. Gun Etiquette. Okay, yeah, it's a good one too. Yeah, such. I mean, like, I don't them. really like the rest of their catalog that much. Yeah, but that album from start to finish is just so good. Um, so Black Damned, Black, Bad Brains, DRI, Black Flag, Black Flag. Um, and then it's a weird one because they didn't make that many recordings, but Void, Void's awesome from DC. Yeah, uh, but we could. I mean, like the last one's gonna be a hard one though. Ramones. That's uh, I always I liked some of the songs, okay. but I never. I'm trying to think. Okay, last. I, we got Kennedy. Oh we got man, Mighty Threat. We got. That's the thing. It's, it's like hard, man. And I, I want to. I mean, of course, I want to put Minor Threat in there, but I feel like every single person's going to put. So I like have to. I mean, like, yeah, Minor Threat. Oh, you saw them, so that's amazing. At Great Gildersleeves, yeah, that's amazing. Um, who else would it be? Okay, I mean, okay, so we got. Bad Brains, DRI, <laughs> Damned, Black Flag. And then I'm, I really, that that mm. fifth one I got, you know what? I'm, this is going to be a little weird. Circle Jerks? No. I'm going to put Pantera in there. Wow. I love. And I know that. They're not people, really a hardcore band, but. No, but you listen to some of the songs yeah. from like, I mean, they, some of the songs are hardcore songs. Okay. You know, I mean, like so fast. And um, Interesting. That's really interesting, I just, man. I love, I don't know. I love, and I had a night out with Daryl. This is obviously way pre-sobriety. One night I was out with Daryl. And pre this too on video. Yeah. Yeah. I was out with Daryl and Tommy Lee and Vinny, the drummer. Okay. And in Dallas. And it was like, we were going to start a band together at four o'clock in the morning, out of my mind on liquor and drugs. We were going to start a band called the Sober Fucks. I like that. So me, me, Tommy Lee, Daryl, and Vinny were gonna start. Oh, a band. Tommy Lee? Yeah. Oh shit, that's crazy. Yeah, Phil wasn't there. Okay. I never, I've never met him, but like, I don't know those Pantera records, even the later ones, like um, Great Southern Trend Kill. Okay. Um, 
You're not a Slayer fan? Slayer fan? Too much kick drum. Like okay. I went to see them live at Irving Plaza and I was like, I understand the kick drum is an integral part of it, but like it's all I could hear was the kick drum. Okay. Um, I get that. I like them, but like, boy, oh boy, Pantera, like whew, I, I still, I listen to uh, a it's, lot It's so Pantera. left field. I'm so shocked right now that you even say that. I can't expect that. But those you know records, I mean? you, you know, every, <laughs> everything that, I mean, like the song, um, War Nerve. Okay. If I had to point I'm not pe- familiar with them at all. I should, I should. It's, I mean, the heart, the, the fast stuff, they were like the fastest of fast, okay. like bad brains level speed. Yeah. DRI's fast too, though. Yeah. I mean, DRI's th- that like crazy, like the fastest of the fast. Okay. If you could, if you could name your five top hip hop MCs. Rakim. Number Best. one. Uh, Best. I mean, again, my list is kind of obvious. Like Rakim, um, Cool Keith. Cool Keith. That's random I love too. Cool I, Keith. I love him too. He's really interesting. Uh, Jay-Z. Yeah. Um, especially the, 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 like the mid to late 90s yeah. Jay-Z stuff. Black, um, the Black Album stuff's great. Um, 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 Those are two of mine already. Oh, you know what I heard the other day that <laughs> blew me away how talented he was? Young MC. Really? The song, um, it's the, it was not the, um, what's the, like. He had the his, one hit. He had that one hit. He has this other track. I think it's called The Know How. Okay. And it's the fastest, like is the, the word play is phenomenal. He had Bust a Move. Yeah, Bust a Move, which is like obviously disposable. You're not going to put him in your top five though. Go listen to this. Um, oh. oh, and then the other would be Casanova C. Oh yeah, I heard that too. Casanova, another, okay, uh, from the mid '80s. Do you like KRS One or yeah, KRS was great. Beastie Boys or De La Soul. But Top as far as Quest. as far as I'm thinking, most talented okay, rappers, MC, yeah. And it would be like so Casanova, Rakim, Rakim, Jay Z, and I'm gonna put Young MC That's in there. Crazy. If you listen to this song, I think it's called the Know How, dude. Okay, and it's, the the his delivery is so good. Okay. It's amazing. So, I'm, so Pantera and Young MC already fucked me up. Mm-hmm. So, so was that five MCs? Yeah. Okay. All right. I think that's right. And, and Cool Keith. Yeah. Cool Keith. Just and because what, he's the most. I remember hearing him freestyle on WNYU a long time ago, and okay. I was like, I don't even know what planet this is coming from. Does Does Moby binge watch Netflix? Do oh you yeah. Watch, do you watch TV shows? Like, what's, what's your show you're watching right now? Right now, I'm having a little bit of a crisis because I don't know what to watch. Did you watch Narcos, the new one? I haven't watched Narcos. Should I watch really Narcos? Good, okay, yeah. maybe I'll give Narcos a chance. I mean, I watch all the obvious middle-aged guy stuff like Homeland, okay, um, et cetera. You know, like and then the the one the one that uh, HBO, The Escape from the So and So Prison, Patricia Arquette, Dan Benicio del Toro. It's an incredible story. Oh, what's it called? Escape from Danamora. Oh, I haven't heard of it. True story about Patricia Arquette's character who has like a love affair with two inmates, and they all and they break out. It hmm. happened in 2015. I gotta oh. say, Patricia Arquette in True Romance. Woo! That's all time. You, you crush. posted that the other That's day. That's my shit. Favorite movie. All time um, crush. I want to talk forever. I have to get going. Oh, good. We're great. We, we covered everything. And you okay. let your true romance fan. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say Moby. That, 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 that scene like it's so romantic. I know. I love After that. he kills all the guys. I want to thank you for being an awesome human, being my friend, using your voice, using your platform for the animals, everything you've done with your career. I'm honored to call you my friend, and I appreciate everything you do with your voice. Well, thanks. Right back at you. And I really want The Morses to be a TV show. All right, we'll see what happens. <laughs> like, <laughs> All right, that'd be awesome. Some of those videos are the funniest things I've ever seen. Like, Thank you, man. Thank yeah. you. Max loves you. All right, thank you, man. Thanks for being on the show, and uh, 
Did we cover yeah. it all, right, guys? Yeah. Awesome, Obi. Thank you. <clears throat> That's going to be kind of like my MO where after I do an interview, I wait and I realize, oh, shit, I, I had more questions for them. So usually there's going to be some extra stuff at the end of all my episodes. It's kind of like the theme of what I've been doing. I'm sorry. I'm just a spaz and I don't get all the questions I need to. And uh, sometimes I just like OCD and bug out on the what I could have, should have asked them and I get them back on the phone. Forwards, I got it. Okay, awesome. All right, so Moby, we're, we're now recording now, but... um. So I interviewed you last week, and there was still a couple more questions I wanted to ask you. Um, we ran out of time. Um, so here goes the questions. So one of them was, when did you move to L.A., and why did you move to L.A.? Well, so I've been born in New York, and I honestly thought that I would spend my entire life living in the city. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, growing up, because I've been born in New York and grew up in Connecticut, and when I finally moved back to New York in the 80s, I just thought, like, where else in the world would I ever want to live? And then, as time passed, a few things happened. Um, one, I got sober. Yeah. And pretty much the moment I got sober, I realized New York is an amazing place to be a drunk, and yeah. it's a really <laughs> challenging place to be sober because the whole I mean the culture in New York as you know it's all about drinking and staying out until four o'clock in the yeah. morning and I mean it's you about don't have to drive yeah you know you think of the songs that have been written about New York like you know walk on the wild side and it's about getting really messed up yeah and and I started thinking to myself I was like okay so where in the world could I live where I can like go hiking in the winter, be around creative people, eat good vegan food, yep. and live in a nice house that's not too expensive. And honestly, L.A. was just top of that list. So yeah. I moved here about 10 years ago. And I have to say, especially now, like it's, you know, we're talking and it's January, yeah. and I'm going to go hiking later, and it's supposed to be 72 and sunny today. Amazing. You know, Going, going hiking outside in jeans and a t-shirt in January when the rest of the world is freezing cold and miserable is pretty great. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's like we live in a little bubble, too, in California, too. Like, you don't realize there's actually a winter going on right now because we have our sunshine. Um, it, is there anything you miss about New York, though? The, the only thing I miss about New York, because I still have an, a little apartment in Brooklyn that I yeah. go back to every now and then, but the... The main thing that I miss, and it might sound kind of weird, well, two things. One, I miss trees that don't need irrigation. Yeah. That's you know, like yeah. there's something nice about like when you're like in Central Park or Prospect Park or upstate, just being around like trees that get adequate rain as yeah. opposed to L.A. Like I feel like we're always an inch away from like climate catastrophe here. No, I agree. Um, I guess the other thing I miss is simply being young. I mean, I'm sure you had the same experience. Like when you're when you're young and you're in New York yeah. and like you're in the center of the world and everything seems possible. 100%. You know, and yeah. like in my case, because I was a drunk, like, you know, when I was in my 20s, I could go out drinking and I didn't really get hung over. And the world, like New York just felt really like safe but exciting at the same time. Yeah, and you could walk everywhere. You'd have to count on having to, even having to drive if you were drunk. You'd jump on a train or a subway, and that was pretty... It kind of enabled you to actually live that lifestyle, too, you know? You didn't have to really have much yeah. responsibility. 
Um, yeah, and it was, I mean, it is a really great place. It was, you know, like in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, New York was just filled with musicians and writers and directors and, you know, everybody you met was creative. Yeah. And I still love New York, but now, you know, it's the land of finance people. It's so different. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned sobriety too. How different is it writing music being sober? Now. Well, it's it's actually a lot better because I had this period after the success of albums like Play and some yeah. of the other records I made. I had this period where I was like drinking a lot and doing tons of drugs, and I and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I started at times making music that I thought would help me to stay famous. Mm. And in hindsight, it's really disgusting. You know, like, I'm really, like, repulsed that I ever did that. And now, especially as you know, like, no one pays for music. So for any of us to work on music, we have to love what we're doing because there's no other reason to do it. So so when I'm making music now, I don't ever think of making money from it. I think simply of, you know, loving the actual process of making music. Yeah, and, and, and you're focused on it, too. You're not, like... It's it's purely for the love of it, not like you said for fame or to stay relevant or stay in the you know what I mean, like stay in the public eye and stuff. Um, yeah, well, especially I mean, like as a fifty-three year old guy, if I was still trying to be relevant and yeah. competing with pop stars, yeah. you know, like <clears throat> that would be tragic. Because the t- the techno world is extremely different than it was back then, and it's extremely um, or EDM, whatever they call it now, but like. There's so many massive DJs now. Do you feel like you're like the OG of that? Uh, I mean, accidentally, a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's it's always funny when people think I'm a DJ because, you know, my background was playing in punk rock bands yeah. and playing in, you know, bands that tried to sound like the Smiths. So, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, I just thought it was... Also, of course, I know how to DJ, but yeah. it's... You know, I, I, I came to DJing way after I started, you know, playing in punk rock bands yeah. and emo bands. Yeah. So like, but like, I guess Skrillex and people like that, are, are they, they're considered DJs basically, right? They just play music or they, they're not, are they playing their own music or they write their own music? I'm well, Skrillex is interesting because I think he's similar to us. Like he, he grew up playing in punk rock bands yeah. and then came to DJing. But a lot of, I mean, like, especially a lot of the European DJs, you know, they're really good at what they do, but they've only ever been <clears throat> DJs. And what's funny is, if you talk to them about music, a lot of times they they don't, and I don't mean this as a criticism, but they actually don't know anything about music. Like, yeah. you sit down at a keyboard, and if you say to them, like, play an A minor chord, they'll quite literally have no idea what you're talking about, mm. but they can still make really good, yeah, you know, they can make these records that sound great in a stadium in front of seventy-five thousand people. Yeah, and uh, it is it is a weird world, especially because a lot of these DJs become very famous really, really quickly. Yeah, you know, like like Avicii, um, and my, one of my favorite stories is Martin Garrix, who's a a DJ from the Netherlands, and his I think his first or second record now has something like 3 billion plays on wow. YouTube. And wow. he was 
So he was he went from like being a kid in his bedroom to quite literally six months later, like standing in front of a hundred thousand people on stage. Um, and some of the venues where he was asked to play, he had to get a waiver from his dad because he was only seventeen. Wow, that's crazy. And um, so wow. it, it can happen. I mean, like, you know, so some of these guys, like, it just happened so quickly. And yeah. obviously a lot of them, like, tragically, like what happened to Avicii, like, yeah. they're not prepared, you know, to go from being, like, an obscure kid with a laptop in your bedroom to suddenly, you know, being in Las Vegas and having people throwing liquor and money and drugs at you. Yeah, it's insane. I, I remember... Skrillex had a band called From First to Last and he was signed to Epitaph and he was a little punk rock kid in the Warp Tour and it was pretty cool to yeah. see that transformation like all of a sudden he that band broke up and all of a sudden he came out as a DJ and I actually ran into him not too long ago and he was super awesome and super like humble and um, so that's pretty cool to see people do that mm-hmm. um, and then h- how did you end up working with Britney Spears? <laughs> <laughs> I so, saw that. Over... I mean, when I started making my own records, I started getting asked to remix or produce other people. So over the years, I mean, I don't do it so much now because it can honestly sometimes be kind of uh, stressful. Yeah. But I mean, I've either produced or remixed, I mean, Ozzy and David Bowie yeah. and Freddie Mercury and Michael Jackson and Britney really? Spears. Public Enemy? And everybody from you know daft punk to soundgarden to whomever like so and a lot of it i did well one in the early days i did it because it was a way to make money yeah but then it just became like such a weird interesting way to like learn about how other people approached yeah making records um, i have to say remixing i remixed beat it the michael jackson song wow. and I still have the master tape somewhere. I should find out where they are. Did um, you do that for him? You were asked to do that? Or oh, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. And so, so Quincy Jones sent me the master tapes, and I have to say that's when I realized what a genius Quincy Jones was because, like, the master tracks for Beat It are, like, like even if it was never even mixed, yeah. it was, like, just so well put together. And I'm not a huge Michael Jackson fan, but yeah. I have to say, like, the production behind that song really blew me away. So that's one of the reasons why I like working with people is because you get to learn how they work. So Britney yeah. Spears, I guess, yeah, we just we wrote a song together and it was the height of her success. And I think I sort of said yes, just because it seemed like such a weird thing to do. Like, yeah. you know, this bald kid who used to play in a hardcore band suddenly writing a song with the biggest pop star on the planet. Yeah, that's amazing, man. Like, it's like, would you? So, that experience with her was she? Would you get to actually do in the studio? Or was just something you recorded and sent to her? Did you um, actually, both. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, and we met up a few times, and she was—I have to say—she was great. Like, she was nice and humble and easy to get along with, easy to work with. Yeah. I thought, I thought I was expecting her to be sort of a prima donna, and she was actually just really great. That's awesome. Um, okay, so two more. So one more is that. You've been vegan for so long before that word was even a word. Like we talked on on the podcast, eating at dojos, eating falafels, eating just whatever we could back then. And now to see it come where it is today and how the world's changing drastically. Um, what, do you, what are your feelings on it currently? And also, like, what do you think the biggest mis- misconception is of vegans still? Be, be some, obviously the protein thing, but something that kind of annoys you or like the, 
uh, just people don't get about us vegans. Well, yeah, I mean, it is amazing to see how far it's come. Um, and now you have like, I mean, National Geographic just had a huge article basically saying that in order for humanity to survive, we have to stop using animals for food. Amazing, man. You know, looking at the environmental aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, of course. And, you know, The Economist and The Observer, all these newspapers and magazines basically saying, like, animal agriculture doesn't work. Like, it's destroying the planet and it's destroying animals. Yeah. I think the biggest misconception, and I actually don't think it's a misconception about vegans. I think it's a misconception that people have about themselves. Mm -hmm. And I used to have this before I went vegan, which was the belief that you can love animals and also contribute to their torture and death. Yeah. Yeah, people, you know, like you, mm-hmm, like yeah. you can't, you can't be a good person who cares about children and also be a pedophile. You know, you 100%. can't be, you know, you can't be a progressive Democrat and also be a member of the KKK and go to cross burnings. Like, yeah, you, yeah. you just you can't love animals and be involved in anything that causes them to suffer and die. Yeah, so so how do those people? That's the one thing people don't make that connection. Like I'm a dog lover, I rescue dogs, I love, I love dogs, but then they're eating hamburgers. And I, I don't understand how people just, they just can't make that connection. You know, it's like I mean, it's, I think it's a lot of it is we don't see like when someone goes to buy meat, they go into the supermarket, and you know, next to the oatmeal and the soap is you know, a piece of hamburger wrapped in plastic and styrofoam, and so they don't think about where it comes from. Yeah, exactly. And I really have to believe that most of the people on the planet, if they truly knew what was happening to the animals who were being, you know, raised and killed, they would, in an instant, you know, become vegan. But, like, 100%. that industry, they do everything in their power to make sure that, like, people never know how the animals are treated. You know, as we know, we have these ag-gag laws mm-hmm. that are all being overturned, but it's the meat industry trying to keep people from documenting how animals are treated on factory farms and in slaughterhouses. Yeah. I think that um, also, I also think when people actually see something, if you post something that's kind of, um, not not just intense, but something that's super factual and it's a reality, and, and people see it, they, they automatically get offensive, and, and they're on the offense because I feel like it makes them think about themselves and how, how what they're eating and how they're they're like, oh my god, I mean, I, I contribute to that. So when they see it, they get so like they feel like you attack them, but it's just something that's the truth. And I think that if more people saw things, saw more documentaries and stuff too, or at schools or whatever, I think people would be more be more conscious to it. You know? Yeah, um, I totally agree. It's like, and it is it is worth asking people like if the truth makes you uncomfortable, you know, like if your actions make you uncomfortable, then maybe it's time to like question the actions and not the truth. Yeah, hundred percent. So yeah, I I I feel like the world's going in a good direction as far as that's concerned. And more people, but even if even if I always say too, even if like vegan is a trend or people are being vegan now because it's their health. Or it's something personal, or it's for the animals, or it's for the environment. The the bottom line is it's saving animals, and like so, I'm happy if it, if it is a trend because it's a super healthy, positive trend for the planet. And I love when people oh. try, you know. And yeah, me too. I mean, I, it's sort of like like I realized like I'm a com- by most people's standards, I'm a complete cliche. Like I live in Los Angeles. I do yoga. I'm a vegan. <laughs> I go hiking. I meditate sometimes. And I was like, but if you're going to be a cliche, like 
it's better than the cliche I was 12 years ago when I was, you know, having 15 drinks a night and spending $200 on cocaine every day yeah, and suicidal yeah. and depressed and sick. Like, yeah. it's gonna be a, like if there's going to be a trend, why not a healthy trend that saves animals, saves people, and saves the environment? Like, yeah. So I it, love that. It's much better than a trend of people killing animals and eating food that makes them sick and also destroys the only home we have. 100%. Um, all right, final question. So I asked you that the other day. I think we got we got sidetracked. But do you consider yourself a, a pessimistic or op- optimistic person? Uh, both. Okay. Um, it depends. Like I'm, you know. Uh, I mean, there's. If it weren't for climate change, I would be very optimistic. Okay. I think we're, you know, a lot of like there are a lot of things that indicate we're all moving in a really good direction. Yeah. The only thing is climate change is so serious and, you know, like I was reading an article recently and it said that the last time the earth had this high a concentration of CO2 and methane in the atmosphere, sea levels were 300 feet higher than they are now. Holy shit. So I think that, you know, there's a chance that humans will survive climate change, but Unfortunately, the way it looks now, like probably like 70% of humanity won't survive climate change. So it's that question of like, what sort of civilization and culture will we have after the climate apocalypse, you know, where we all have to live in Alaska and Canada and Scandinavia and, um, but maybe, maybe that's what's needed. You know, like sometimes in order to get people to change, like if they're completely unwilling to change, they sometimes need to be faced with, you know, incontrovertible evidence that, yeah. you know, the way they've been living is really, really not healthy or sustainable. Yeah. And then, and then I, well, I would say on the other side, not, not saying I know how you feel, but like, as far as being like a positive person, I feel like you get to do what you love. Um, you do music for a living. Um, you know what I mean? Like you, you get to have your own time scales. You have no boss. You get to, you know what I mean? Like this, I feel like in that sense, life is great for you. Well, and I'm not, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do love that, you know, I don't have a normal job Yeah. that, you know, I've been able to save enough money so I can like not have to worry about paying the rent. Yeah. But, but to me, that's also from that is like, it becomes like, it's, it's that question of like, if you have good circumstances, what do you do with them? Sure. And like the question I always ask myself is like, I don't want to be selfish. Like, you know, I, I have a comfortable life. So that means that I should do everything in my power to go out and be of service. Like, 100%. you know, we know lots of people who are just focused on being selfish and, yes. and they're miserable. And it seems like such a waste of, opportunity and such a waste of resources like when you can go out and you can help people help animals help the world isn't that a better use of a life than just being selfish and trying to see what you know what selfish things the world can give you yeah and that and that and that fulfills you because you are you do donate a lot and you do a lot of things for animal and you use your platform and your voice to help the animals and help to help the planet so i feel like that definitely probably fulfills you you know fulfills your heart um Right. Yeah, and yeah. it's. I mean, it's sort of. 
it's a little bit of a paradox that like the more at least in my life, the more selfish I've been, the less happy I've been. Yeah. And the more I focus on trying to be of service and trying to, you know, like help animals, help the environment, help other people, the more I focus on that, sort of paradoxically, the happier I am. Yeah. Like the That's less amazing. money I spend on myself, the happier I end up as a person. Awesome. And do and do you have like do you have like daily rituals that you do, like yoga or like you said, meditation? Do you have something you do every day that's like something you do to start your day or to get you through the day or? Uh, yeah. And it sounds like, <laughs> I mean, everything you just mentioned, I, I, you know, like, I mean, I eat well, I try to eat mainly yeah. organic food and I go hiking and I exercise and I meditate and do yoga and I do all those things. Yeah. So it's the idea of, you know, for us to be of service, we have to take care of ourselves. hundred percent. You know, and I'm sure yeah. you see this all the time, like with activists where they're like, they're always burned out. And I'm like, you know, the world needs activists for a long, you know, to stay alive and be yes. healthy. So like sleeping well and being sober and, you know, I mean, it's kind of like the name of your organization, like one life, one chance. Exactly. And, you know, to, to have a good life and, you know, be of service, you need to take care of yourself. So mentally and physically. You know, yeah. Yep. So that's, that's a, a huge part of activism is actually self care. Yeah. People don't, people don't, I never heard anybody really talk about that. People don't really talk about that. It's, it's all about like, like you said, people go super hard. See, it's for the animals every single day. They don't think about themselves. They don't take care of themselves. And then they, they burn out pretty quick. And yeah, it's good, good to have a balance there. And I feel like, I feel like oh, yeah. you, you have that balance down. Um, well, cause I went so far to the other extreme of, you, did, you, you know, did. like, you know, drinking and doing drugs and being selfish and, you know, wanting to die all the time. So like, this is, this is a much healthier way of approaching things. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy because yeah, that's, it's amazing. It's amazing. You're vegan through all that too. You know what I mean? Like you're wilding out, partying, doing everything, sleeping with women and being crazy, but still we're conscious of the animals through all that. And that, that's pretty amazing, man. Yeah, that's like the only constant. Yeah. I don't know. I was sort of like, you know, in 1987 when I went vegan, I was like, that's it. Stuck this to it. Will never, this will never change. And I hope it never does. Like it's, you know, I'm sure you get these questions a lot. Like people are like, okay, if you're on a desert island and you're starving to death and the only thing that you could do to stay alive is kill rabbits and eat them, would you? And I was like, well... I have never been in that situation, so it's yeah. hard to say, but I like, I guess a core of my worldview, my belief, is that my life is no more important than the life of an animal. Mm -hmm. So I hope that I would recognize that and say, like, look, just because I'm human doesn't make me more important or valuable than a chicken or a rabbit or a cow or a pig yeah. or anything. You know, like, so I, I just really don't believe that, you know, like, killing another creature is ever called for for me to stay alive like i'd rather die than kill another creature i agree and people ask me too i have been straight edge my whole life so it's like would you eat meat or would you try weed and i have to say man i, w I would probably try weed i probably would never eat i i, I can't see myself eating an animal ever again like i couldn't do it man like yeah, much. I'm, I'm much more comfortable hurting myself than hurting someone else. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't, I never want to be in that situation where I have to do that. But, um, yeah, I could never, I could never do that, man. It's, it's, yeah, yeah it's crazy. 
Um, all right, awesome. Well, I think this we we talked about a lot, and I appreciate your time. And um, thank you once again for being a voice, being my friend, and doing what you do. I appreciate it very yeah, much. Yeah, well, I'm, I feel like I should send you a check because it's been like therapy. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it so much, and uh, hopefully, I'll see you soon. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm I'm around, so let me know when you, we we should meet up with Tony and go get you know middle aged guy vegan lunch somewhere. Okay, awesome. <laughs> thank you, bro, so much. Okay. Okay. Bye. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Um, please rate, review, uh, subscribe. If you haven't subscribed yet to this podcast, please do that. And whatever platform you are listening to this on, I'm glad you found me. You can rate me and review me on there also. So thank you guys sincerely for the support. I cannot wait for you guys to hear the next one.